Thank you for firing up the Sunrise Church podcast. My name is Steve Garcia, and I am the lead pastor at Sunrise. We are a community of Jesus followers from all walks of life, all colors of skin, and all ages. And I hope this message you hear today inspires you to deepen your connection with Christ. Let's dive in. Well, good morning, family. It's awesome to be together and to worship our great God. It's already been a great weekend. As Pastor Anthony mentioned, we had a women's conference yesterday. All weekend long, our students have been up in the snowy mountains of winter camp, and so we're believing in faith that God's been doing something in the hearts of the next generation. They get back today, and so for us here, now we have an opportunity to worship as a family. Hey, before I uh, dive into today's message, I wanna tell you about an opportunity that is coming your way. As you know, Easter is right around the corner. In fact, this Wednesday marks 40 days until Easter Sunday. And in the Bible, 40 is a number that's typically associated with a time of testing. And so we want to step into a test of our own. What we want to encourage the church is starting this Wednesday to take the next 40 days to fast and to pray, specifically to pray for those who do not yet know Jesus. I bet you know somebody, a family member, a coworker, a friend, someone who doesn't yet know Jesus. Imagine what might happen if over the course of the next 40 days you fasted and prayed for them. Now, fasting is a spiritual discipline that's meant to increase our dependence on God. And throughout the scripture, that's almost always putting food aside, which is a pretty big one because we are dependent upon food. But instead, when we deny ourselves, we use that time to focus our hearts in prayer. And so we want to encourage you to fast from something, or you could take part in our fasting challenge. Our team has put together something for 40 days. It's a different fast every day. Sometimes it's food, sometimes it's other things, like media. It's actually harder than you think. And so we, we've put this together, and there's some of you, you just, you just need to have some paper. You need something in your hand. If that's the case, we've got the fasting guide, a couple printouts for you. Pastor Anthony can share with you after service where you can get that. But if you're anything like me, you have good intentions, you grab the paper, and then it ends up on the floor of the minivan. And so instead, what I would love for you to do is to jump on our website, sunrisechurch.org. You can click on the fasting challenge and sign up, and we'll send you the daily challenge to your email inbox every morning so that you could start your day. Or if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, we'll post the daily fasting challenge every day so you can get up and start your day. But imagine what might happen if we focused our hearts in prayer for those who do not yet know Christ. It all starts this Wednesday, the fasting challenge. Are you up for it? Amen. All right, so with that said, let's jump in. Uh, so today we begin a brand new message series through one of the most controversial, compelling, and confusing books in the entire Bible the book of Revelation. Now, if you are new to the faith or new to the church, the book of Revelation may seem like one big mystery to you. If you are not new to the church and if you have had years of faith, the book of Revelation might seem like one big mystery to you. Uh, you know, I, I think that if you have some understanding of the Bible, you probably are familiar with some of the big sort of headline things that jump out of the book of Revelation. Things like, I know it talks about an antichrist, or 666, the mark of the beast, you know, one world government. You know, and anytime something happens across world headlines, like Russia invading Ukraine, a little antenna pops up and we begin to wonder, are we in the end times? Is the book of Revelation unfolding before our very eyes? Is Putin the antichrist? Is the COVID vaccine the mark of the beast? 
Is Jesus coming again? These are all valid questions that I think a lot of people wonder about. And so when you learned that we were gonna be talking about Revelation, I wonder what your emotion was. I bet for some of you, you're happy because you've always wanted to kind of dig into this book, but maybe you felt a little intimidated by it, and so this is a good opportunity for you to engage. Some of you are probably upset and saying, why are we wasting our time talking about what's gonna happen in the future when we have very real problems right here, right now? And some of you are excited because at home, you've got charts on the wall, and you've got all these end-time theories, you've got a bomb shelter in your backyard, and so you're ready for this whole kind of thing. Whatever your emotion around the topic on the book of Revelation is, I want you to understand something. There's actually a promise found in Scripture, actually in the third verse of Revelation 1, that talks about why it's a good thing for us to dig into this book. Listen to these words. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. There is a blessing in store for you and I if we're willing to dig into this difficult book. Now, what makes Revelation so complex is that it's a mixture of events that took place in the first century with timeless truths that aren't associated with any time period, a little bit of Western history, and a whole lot of things that are yet to come. And the reality is that we could take an entire year just going verse by verse through the book of Revelation and still not fully grasp it. So we're not gonna do that, but this is what we are gonna do. Over the course of the next seven weeks, we're gonna take an overview and certainly encourage you to go into more detail in your quiet time. So here's the plan over the course of the next seven weeks. Today, we're gonna talk about Jesus' revelation to the church. Next week, we're gonna talk about suffering that is coming our way for God's people. In week three, we're gonna talk about increased hostility that is going to occur with those who follow Christ. Then in week four, we'll talk about deception that will overtake the world, followed by judgment, glory, and then all culminating with week seven, which is Easter Sunday, where the spotlight is on Jesus. And so that is the overarching plan. And I believe this. I believe that all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God. I believe every word is there exactly as he wants them to be. And I believe every book of the Bible is necessary for you and I to grow deeper in our understanding of Jesus and more importantly, to be more like him. And the book of Revelation is no exception. So with that, let's dive in to the very first verse of Revelation 1, the last book of the Bible. If you have your Bibles, this would be a good time to get them out. If not, we'll post the Bible verses up on the screen. Revelation 1, verse 1. Read along with me. It says, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the full name of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not Revelations. Hey, what are you learning about in church? Revelations? No, it's Revelation. And the word Revelation means to reveal, to uncover, to disclose. So Jesus has revealed to us things that are to come. It's by Jesus, from Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. Now here's what's interesting. 
I find it interesting that this Revelation is the last book of the Bible and not the first. You see, this is not the basis of the Christian faith, which is interesting when you compare this to other religions because many other religions in the world start from a revelation. For example, Buddhism. Buddhism began when uh, a man from Nepal was meditating and received enlightenment or a revelation which would become the basis of the teachings of Buddha. Mormonism, for example, came about when an American man received a revelation from God which would become the basis of the teachings of Mormonism. Islam came about when an Arab man received a revelation which would become the basis of the Muslim faith. Yet when you compare this with Christianity, this revelation isn't the beginning, it's the end. It's not the basis of the Christian faith, it's the culmination. In fact, if you were to take the book of Revelation and cut it out of the Bible, we would still have more than enough to know all of the questions the major religions ask. Who is God? What is my purpose? How do I handle the problem of evil? How do I know God? What happens after I die? But yet what we have in Revelation is this beautiful ending of a story that has unfolded throughout Scripture that began in the book of Genesis with God in perfect communion with humanity and ends in the book of Revelation with God in perfect communion with humanity. And this revelation was given to a man named John who historically is believed to be the Apostle John, one of, of Jesus' 12 disciples and one of his closest friends. These were the circumstances in which this book was written. Verse nine says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. One of the many things I love about the Bible is that it's written from real places. This isn't some story written from a fictional land like Middle Earth. John was in Greece. In fact, if you had the money, you could go there today. Here, here's a picture of what Patmos, Greece looks like. It's beautiful, right? Mountains and water and greenery. In fact, there's a place there that's actually a shrine dedicated to the Apostle John. It's called the Cave of the Apocalypse. And this is the place that's widely believed to be the exact location where John received this revelation from Jesus Christ. It's a real place. And so John, in his time, was in Patmos, which was an island that was heavily populated, uh, but it also had these smaller offshoot islands that were reserved for labor camps for criminals. And John was one of those criminals. What was his crime? He refused to bow the knee to the Roman emperor Domitian, and so as a result, he was exiled to this labor camp. He was by himself. His only company would have been a Roman overseer with a whip in hand. His days would have been filled with exhaustive labor. He likely had insufficient food, insufficient clothing, probably slept on a cold floor. All of this would have taken its toll on the body of a 90-year-old man. And yet despite this suffering from the Apostle John, he never lost his faith in Christ. Look at verse 10. He says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. 
So John, on a Sunday, was having his own little worship service. You could take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy. Even in exile, he's worshiping the Lord. And imagine how terrifying it would be if you thought you were alone, singing all loud and out of tune, and then all of a sudden, a voice starts thundering behind you saying, write down these words you're about to hear. Imagine how terrifying that would be. So yet, John gathers himself and, and tries to find out where the sound is coming from. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John found himself standing in the presence of King Jesus. Now, understand, as one of Jesus' disciples, John saw a whole lot of Jesus. He traveled with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. He saw Jesus breathe his last breath on a cross. He saw the resurrected Jesus in person. He watched Jesus float up into the clouds and ascend back to heaven. John saw a whole lot of Jesus, but he never saw Jesus like this. And when he did, he passed out. And I bet you and I would do the same thing. And as John is quivering in fear on the ground. Look what Jesus does next, verse 17. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Don't miss this beautiful picture. A frail, scared 90-year-old man quivering, shaking in fear. And Jesus comes alongside him and puts a hand on his shoulder and says, don't you worry, I'm still God, I'm still here. And his message is, do not be afraid. See, the book of Revelation is actually a book of encouragement. It was never meant to crush your soul, it was meant to lift your spirit. And I see in these first couple of chapters of Revelation three powerful encouragements. In fact, if you're taking notes, jot these down. Here we find the first encouragement from the book of Revelation. Number one, fear not. Jesus began with these words in verse 17 to John the Apostle. He said, do not be afraid. Why should we not be afraid? Because Jesus said, I am the first and the last. He is the creator, the redeemer, the conquering king, who's coming again. Why should we not be afraid? Because Jesus said, I am the living one. He's not just some dead guy from history who's got a statue commemorating his life. He is alive and well. And he's coming again. And when he does, he's not, he's not coming back as a little baby. He's not coming back as the meek shepherd who willingly took slaps to the face and whips to the back. He's coming as the conquering king. 
We should not be afraid because Jesus said, I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. It was as, Jesus, as if Jesus was saying to John, look, they killed me once, but that's only because I willingly laid my life down for the sins of the world. But make no mistake, they will not kill me again. Jesus is alive forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And one of the reasons why we should not be afraid is because Jesus says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. These are the two most terrifying things we have, death and hell. I've never met a person who's not afraid to die. Even those who say they're not afraid to die, all of us have some fear of death because we've never done it. I mean, who wants to think about death? Will, will it be quick? Will it be slow? Will it be painless? Will I suffer? Will I die as an old person having lived a full life? Or will my days be cut short in my youth? Can I share with you what my number one fear in life is? My number one fear is that I would die while my kids are still young and that they would resent Jesus for it forever. I carry that fear often. And maybe what's more, more terrifying than the what is the where. Where will I spend eternity after I die? I mean, none of us want to think about hell. We would much rather dismiss it as a fear tactic inv invented by the church. You know, or, or a place that's not going to be so bad because all my friends will be there anyway. <laughs> but, the, but the images of hell in the Bible are terrifying. It's described as a place of torment, a, a, a place of unceasing regret that I missed it. It's described as a place of darkness where we will be alienated from God and from other people. It's described as a place of agony where there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. How scary is that? And yet here comes Jesus, who says, the two things that strike fear the most in the heart of man, death and hell, have no mastery over me. In fact, Jesus says he holds the keys in his hand. And that is why you and I should fear not if you are in Christ Jesus. Now listen, <laughs> now look, I, I know this world is a scary place. I mean, these events that are happening in Eastern Europe right now are very scary. And we're not sure where these things are gonna escalate. And if you watch the news, if you glue yourself to the 24-hour cycle, if you're constantly reading the headlines, the message you will get is fear, fear, fear. And yet the message of the scriptures is you do not need to be afraid. Because listen to this description of our God, Psalm 46, one through seven. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not, what? Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Hello. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. 
The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Listen, fear not. Why? Because our God is firmly in control. Jesus is firmly on the throne. And there is nothing that happens outside of the power of his almighty right hand. The first encouragement from Scripture, from the book of Revelation, is fear not. You know, what's interesting is this voice starts speaking to the Apostle John saying, grab a scroll and start writing down everything you hear. And the things that are going to start coming his way start flying fast and furious. And some of them don't make sense. Some of them are really hard to understand. And in coming weeks, we're going to really press into those things. And one of them uh, was mentioned earlier in the, in the scripture, these seven stars and these seven lampstands. The number seven is a, a number you hear a lot in the book of Revelation. It stands for completeness or wholeness. And so we're left to interpret a lot of these things, but at the end of Revelation chapter one, Jesus does us a massive favor. He interprets it for us. <laughs> Look what he says in verse 20. He said, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars are angels, the lampstands are churches, so John is told, write seven letters to seven angels of seven churches. Now, the word angel there is simply translated as the word messenger. So it seems highly unlikely that John is told to write a letter to an angelic being. Instead, if you look at it as write a letter to the messenger of the church, that word messenger almost certainly means the pastor of that local church. And so Jesus gives this revelation to John to write to these seven churches this message from Jesus. Let's dig into one of them. This is Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel, or to the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. All seven of these letters follow a template, and they all start with Christ, a different description of Christ. In this one, we have this beautiful picture of Jesus holding the seven stars. Jesus holds the pastors in his hand, and he dwells among the lampstands. Jesus is in the midst of his church. And then it moves from Christ to compliment, to criticism, to correction. And I think it's cool that Jesus puts compliment before he puts criticism which is good practice for all of us anyway. You know, anytime you have to deliver difficult news to somebody, it's always good to start with something affirming. Every time you have to hear hard news or hear a hard truth, it's nice to first hear something positive. And the way you know you really messed up is when the other person really struggles to find anything positive to say about you. <laughs> Boss calls you into the office, have a seat, Bob. The reason for this meeting today is we wanna to talk to you about your job performance. But before I get into that, I just want to tell you that I really appreciate your, uh, I, I, I really uh, appreciate your, uh, your water bottle. Man, that thing is neat. Does that keep the water cold? I was like, oh gosh, here it comes, right? And so Jesus starts off with this, with this 
compliment to this church in Ephesus. He said, hey, you guys are working hard. You got a lot of activity going on. You've been really committed to teaching the truth. Good job. That was the compliment. Here comes the criticism. Verse four. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. The Ephesian church was guilty of forsaking their first love. For a church that was so committed to teaching the right information, somewhere along the way, they lost sight of the right inspiration. Somewhere this church stopped being about Jesus. Which leads me to the second encouragement from the book of Revelation. The first one is fear not. The second one is turn back. One of the biggest messages of the book of Revelation is it's not too late. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming our way. It's not too late to turn back. It's not too late, too late to get right. Come on back home. Come back to your first love. You know, of the seven churches that John wrote to, five of them had criticisms. The church in Ephesus, they lost their first love. Let's look at some of the others. The church in Pergamum, he said, they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. The church in Thyatira, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet? By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. To the church in Sardis, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And to the church in Laodicea, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Can you imagine being in one of these churches? They say, hey, here's the message today, a letter from Jesus, here it is. And you absorb that criticism. What would you do with that? Hopefully, we would be cut to the heart and feel convicted and turn back. This is an encouragement from Jesus. He's saying, I love you too much. Turn back. Many people believe these seven churches represent seven eras of the church, you know, beginning with the first century and moving on up. But more likely, these seven churches represent all churches everywhere, the big C church. The church is the, the movement of Jesus' followers all over the globe. And the church is not a building. The church is a body. And who makes up his body? His followers. And Jesus was so concerned about what he was seeing in the body. He was, he was seeing all kinds of things like People getting caught up in, in trendy teaching that de-emphasizes any kind of personal holiness. Just do whatever you want to do Monday through Saturday. Just come back and worship Jesus on Sunday. He saw people messing around with sexual immorality. He saw people getting off-center, losing sight of Jesus. He was so concerned about Christians who were sort of Christian, sort of not, on the fence, he was so disgusted by what he saw, he actually said to the church in Laodicea, I'm gonna spit you out. It actually means I'm gonna vomit. Have you ever seen somebody vomit? It's gross and uncomfortable. 
This is the disdain Jesus had for what he was seeing. But he's not trying to pound us over the head for our shortcomings. Instead, he's saying, but I love you so much, I want you to turn back. This is where we get our word repent. It simply means to turn from something to something. It doesn't mean run away aimlessly. It means run towards something intentionally. And Jesus' message to his church, to these local seven, and to ultimately you and I, is come on back. We see it all throughout these, these five churches that he criticized. Look at this. The church in Ephesus, he said, consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. To the church in Pergamum, repent, therefore. To the church in Thyatira, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. To the church in Sardis, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. To the church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and say with me, repent. Do we see a theme here? Jesus is saying, come back, turn back. And isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't write to Rome? He didn't write to politicians. He didn't write to civil leaders. He wrote to the church. We're the lampstands. We are the light of the world. What's this world gonna do when all of the chaos ensues and they're looking to somebody for answers and we look like them? The church is at its best when we're different, when we're countercultural, when we're shining light in a dark place. And so this message that John gave from Jesus to the churches was, it's time to turn back. It's, it's a message of repentance. And so when you look at your life, when was the last time you read the Bible long enough to sense God speaking to you? When was the last time you told somebody about Jesus. Have you gotten caught up in some trendy teaching that emphasizes politics or tolerance or some hollow form of spirituality that has no impact on how you conduct your day-to-day life? Has sexual immorality become such a part of your world that it doesn't even bother you anymore? Some of us are making babies with people we're not married to. Some of us are living together, fooling around. Some of us are spiraling deeper and deeper into pornography. That's not what Jesus wants. He loves you and I too much to stand on the sideline and just watch us destroy our lives. Instead, he's saying, come on, turn back. I love you. You're my church. It's not too late. The first encouragement from the book of Revelation, fear not. The second one, turn back. Here's the third one, stay strong. One of the primary themes of the book of Revelation is perseverance. I mean, consider the backdrop. You have John, this frail old man, barely hanging on physically. And Jesus shows up, places an assuring hand on his shoulder and says, I'm about to show you what's gonna happen and in the end, Jesus wins, and if you're with Jesus, that means you win too, so hang on a little longer. Stay strong. We see this all throughout the seven letters that John wrote to the seven churches. Stay strong, and there's reward if you do. Look at some of these messages. 
Church in Ephesus, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We first see the tree of life in the book of Genesis. It represents the presence of God. We then see the tree of life at the end of the book of Revelation, which represents the presence of God. You stay strong and you'll eat from that tree. To the church in Smyrna, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. If you stay strong, you will be given a crown and you'll avoid the second death, which is eternal separation from God. Church in Pergamum, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, manna in the scripture represents the provision of God. He will give you everything you need to stay strong. He's the bread of life. The white stone may refer to how they conducted trials back then. See, when you were guilty, they would put a black stone on the table. But when you were declared innocent, when you were acquitted, they put a white stone on the table. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been acquitted, you have been made innocent because the death of Jesus Christ took away the penalty of the sin that's hanging over all of us. He says, you'll be given a new name. Throughout scripture, we see name changes. In the Old Testament, Abram was renamed Abraham. Jacob renamed Israel. In the New Testament, Simon renamed Peter. You stay strong and Jesus will give you a new name which marks a new identity, a higher commitment to God. To the church in Thyatira, he says, to the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. You stay strong, and someday you will co-reign with Christ. Church in Sardis, to the one who is victorious, you will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. White clothes or undefiled garments were a representation of someone who did not lose their Christian witness. And Jesus is saying, because you are not embarrassed of me, I will acknowledge you before heaven. You stay strong. The church in Philadelphia, he says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. You know, back then when war would destroy an area or an earthquake would shake buildings, very often the thing that was left standing was the pillar. And Jesus was saying, stay strong. And when the world all around you is being shelled and is being shaken, I will make you as strong as a pillar. And to the church in Laodicea, he said, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Just like the father shares his authority with the son, you stay strong and the son will share his authority with you. Stay strong. Every single week, I read all of the prayer requests that get submitted, I pray over every single one of them. This past week I was struck by how many people, either directly or indirectly, are affected by cancer. You stay strong. You might not have hair on your head, but you stay strong and someday you'll be wearing a crown on your head. Amen. <laughs> there's, been, there's been so many people who've been struggling with their relationships, loneliness, marriages falling apart, kids making horrible, foolish decisions. Stay strong. 
God will make you a pillar. And when all of the chaos around you is shaking, he will keep you fixed. So many people have written down illnesses, addictions, depression. You feel like you're all the way down in the dumps. You stay strong, and someday God will take you out from the bottom and put you up on the top so that you can co-reign with him. The reason why we could stay strong is because Jesus showed us how to do it. He stayed strong all the way to the very end. And I just wonder that as, as Jesus was arrested and falsely accused and slapped and whipped and tortured and forced to carry a cross up a hill, I just wonder if the angels in heaven were, were looking down and asking, is he gonna make it? Is he gonna stay faithful all the way to the end? And the answer is yes, he made it. Yes, he stayed faithful all the way to the end. I love how the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus stayed strong to the very end because he kept his eyes fixed on the joy before him. And what was that joy? Pleasing the Father by laying his life down for the sins of the world. And so our command is to keep our eyes fixed on this Jesus. You got all of heaven cheering you on. Keep going. You stay strong. The message of Revelation was never meant to scare you. It was meant to strengthen you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this ought to fire you up. But if you don't know Jesus, that's an entirely different response. You know, Jesus said something very interesting to the church in Laodicea. It's recorded in verse 20 of Revelation 3. He said, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is actually a terrifying verse. You want to know why? Because where was Jesus? At a church, knocking on the door. Hello, can I come in? Any chance that I can come into your church? I mean, what was going on in there? Who were they worshiping so much so that Jesus was on the outside looking in? And I wonder how many of us are the same way. We have some form of religion, some form of spirituality. But Jesus is knocking on the door, looking through the window. Hey, any chance I could come in there? Have you ever opened the door and let Jesus in? If you've never intentionally done that, I, I want to help you do that today. You know, the, this is how you do it. The, the main reason why we keep Jesus locked out is because we're guilty of what he's going to find when he comes in the house. And the way you start a relationship with Jesus is you open that door and say, come on in. It is a disgusting mess in here. And that's on me. But I believe you can forgive me of all of this. So Jesus, today I'm asking you to come in. I'm believing in faith that you are who you say you are, that you died in my place. And I don't want to keep living in this squalor. I want to do something different. I want to do something new. Will you change me, Jesus? Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? 
If you've never deliberately prayed anything like this, I wanna help you do that right now. In fact, I wanna ask you to even just close your eyes to help you focus, and I want you to just picture these words just going straight up to heaven. I wanna give you a prayer that you could repeat after me. Just in the silence of your own heart, I'll give you the words, but you, you have to pray it by faith, and it'll go right up to heaven. You just pray these words to Jesus. Jesus, today I open the door. Just in the quietness of your own heart, pray that right back to him. Jesus, today I open the door. I invite you in. I admit my sins before you. But I believe in faith that you died in my place. And so I'm asking you to forgive me of these sins. I believe you are God and I ask you to change me so that I can live a life that honors you. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Now if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I wanna encourage you to let somebody know. On your programs, there's a little tear-off card at the bottom. You could check that box that says, I said yes to Jesus. And in just a little bit, we're gonna pass offering bags around. You could drop that in there. Or you can go out to the next step table and let somebody know. Another way you could do it is you could take out your phone right now and text the word NEXT to 909-281-7797. One of our staff people is on the other side of that line waiting for that text to come. And they're ready to just engage with you. Just tell them, today I said yes to Jesus. They wanna help you grow, take that next step. Anybody looking to take a next step, text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Maybe you wanna get connected to a small group. Maybe you wanna learn more about your faith. You just need somebody to talk to. Maybe you wanna find a place to serve. Maybe you need some assistance. Text NEXT to 909-281-7797. Don't keep going the way you've been going. Don't do this alone. Friends, listen. We live in a world that has fallen asleep. But soon and very soon, Jesus is coming again, and we need to be ready. Next week, we're going to be talking about suffering. The book of Revelation discusses worldwide cataclysmic events, but amidst this great calamity is great hope. So be thinking who you can invite with you to church to hear a message of hope. But until then, let's be encouraged from the book of Revelation. Fear not, King Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. Turn back, it's not too late to make a change and come back to your first love. And stay strong. Jesus shows us the end, and in the end, he wins. So hang on a little longer. You stay strong. The book of Revelation was never meant to scare us. It was meant to strengthen us. And so may today you be strengthened to continue to follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. I want to encourage you to not just stop here. Maybe you sense God is speaking to you today and wanting you to take that next step. So here's two ways you can do just that. The first is text the word NEXT to the number 909-281-7797.
That's 909-281-7797. You'll receive a message back with some ways to help you grow. That may mean joining a small group or finding a place to serve or just talking with someone one-to-one about your faith. You can also visit the notes for this podcast and follow the links provided. And if you're within driving distance of one of our four physical locations in Banning, Ontario, Rialto, or Victorville, we'd love for you to stop by sometime and give us a chance to meet you personally. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and we hope to see you soon. God bless.